Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by journalist and presenter John Humphreys. Born in Cardiff, John left school at 15 and became a reporter at the Penarth Times. In 1966 he joined the BBC, covering initially Liverpool and then the North West. Rapidly rising through the ranks, he went on to open the BBC's News Bureau in the USA and South Africa and was responsible for their coverage of many high-profile global events. He became a familiar face in 1981 when he was selected to anchor the BBC's flagship Nine O'Clock News. And in 1986, he was unexpectedly offered a job as one of the presenters of the Today programme and, of course, immediately accepted. Staying with the show ever since, he's broken countless stories, interviewed global leaders and talked with many famous faces. On top of that, John has written seven books, presents the BBC's quiz show Mastermind and has won Broadcaster of the Year at the Sony Radio Awards. John, an enviable career. Thank you for joining me. Pleasure. First question is, why would any sane human being get up at such an ungodly hour? They wouldn't if they were sane, so therefore, by definition, um, I'm not of that clan. Uh, I am a bit bonkers, always have been. Driven is what... Uh, people is the expression people use uh, but then you see I don't regard this as a job <laughs> and I'm always mildly surprised when I get paid at the end of the month because it always seems to me to be the sort of thing that most people would want to do anyway because it's good fun and that's the point really and that I suppose is the slightly serious answer to your question about why you get up in the middle of the night it's not early in the morning it's the middle of the night let's be clear about that what time is it then let's well in my case it's half past three I'm the last I am the sluggard the others get up rather early and come in rather earlier, but uh, I exercise my authority by my, well, my age anyway by coming in slightly later than everybody else. So I get up at the ludicrously late hour of three uh, thirty. Wow! And, and just being specific again, what what does an average day at the Today programme entail? There's no such thing as an average day. I mean, this morning, for instance, as I speak to you, we've just come off the air. Um, we went in with a program that was, as always, there is a complete running order. Every slot is filled. The three hours of airtime is allocated to this, that, and the other. Um, occasionally there'll be the odd little gap, but usually it's all filled. Um, and this morning we had a pretty tight one because I pre-recorded a couple of important interviews yesterday, so they were already slotted in and then all the other live stuff and all the rest of it. But then, literally, as we were going on air at a minute past six and we were reading the headlines and getting going, um, we learned that Charles Kennedy had died, which, of course, changed everything. So right from the very top of the programme, it, uh, it, it becomes, as it were, a different programme. And instead of doing all lots of things that we had planned to do, we do one, two, three, four, five, I'm just counting, I think six different things on Charles Kennedy, talking to people um, like Paddy Ashdown, who knew him well, and various other stuff. So inevitably, um, when somebody, when something like that happens during the course of the programme, when you've just gone on air, you have to change. And you've got you to be prepared. You throw the schedule out the window, do you? You just throw stuff out, yeah. It's very sad, a lot, of, a lot of wasted effort, a lot of people put to a lot of trouble, but it's news. And in terms of when that's happening in the moment, if breaking news happens, presumably a producer says, right, we've got Paddy Ashdown coming on, on air in three minutes, and then you're just left to, to busk it based on your, your, your well, knowledge and your years of a journalist it, it, and your experience. It, it, it'll sometimes be 30 seconds. I got... Uh, literally, well, I don't know whether you can split seconds, but if you can split seconds, I mean, in broadcasting, yeah. as opposed to in science, I got a seconds warning of something that I had to do this morning. And that happens. That happens all the time. I once had a call from uh, a, a caller. Uh, uh, the producer came into the, my headphones. Obviously, you wear headphones in the studio. And the studio producer came into my headphones and said, uh, this was at 20 to 7 in the morning, and said, uh, Margaret Thatcher's on the phone. She was, of course, Prime Minister at I the time. I remember that famously. You, you remember yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, 
And obviously, I, I reacted with huge professionalism. I assumed that he was winding me up, and so I gave him an appropriate sign through the glass because we were on air, so I couldn't speak. <laughs> yeah. And I, I indicated with two fingers what I thought about this silly joke of his. Um, and then seconds after that, I heard the voice of Margaret Thatcher saying, good morning, Mr. Humphries, and she was indeed on the phone. So, and, and again, something like that happens. I mean, she'd rung to complain about something or other to make us. She rung. There was a kitchen in, in the kitchen down. She, she was she famously. Yes, yeah. that's right. And uh, anyway, and I, I said to well, you know, since I've got you now, we dealt with whatever it was. She phoned up about and I said since we got you I suppose we should do a proper interview and she said yes I rather thought you might say that so we did so again the programme changed because that then made the, the, the news at ten past eight and all that that sort of thing happens not all the time it doesn't happen all the time that the Prime Minister rings you up in fact it's never happened since but, <laughs> yeah. um, but the programme it's very very rare I don't I doubt that there's ever been uh, an edition of the Today programme that's gone on air as planned mm. And I'd be rather disappointed if it did. It's a live programme and things happen, so therefore you reflect them. And clearly you're reporting the news and interviewing the newsmakers, but do you ever feel in the moment that you know that, that you're going to make the news, that the result of what your interviewee is saying, oh, that's yeah, going to lead the bulletins? A, yeah, well, if you didn't, you, you wouldn't be a journalist. Um, otherwise, yeah, you couldn't conduct a proper interview if you weren't aware of what's important because what makes the news is that which is important and changes things. Um, and if you weren't aware of that, then you shouldn't be doing the job. So, yeah, of course you are. I mean, when you hear somebody say, and it doesn't have to be like I'm resigning, um, but you know pretty much what is going to make the papers the next day, if anything. And do you ever feel that you're, as you're interviewing them in the moment, that you are the final nail in their coffin, as it were, that their days are numbered? I mean, I remember famously you interviewed John, George Entwistle on this Saturday morning. Uh, yes. you, you could almost hear his resignation in his voice. Yes, as I, I think I realised... Well, no, it wouldn't be true to say that I knew that he was going to resign, certainly not within a matter of hours of that interview. But I could tell as I was doing the interview, he was sitting opposite me, he was in the studio. And uh, and I could see from his eyes, I think, mm. that um, he knew he was in desperately deep trouble and that probably the game was up for him. How that would play out, of course, I had no idea. But yes, I could tell during the course of the... It started out fairly routinely, and then after about five or six minutes, uh, when he was being, I have to say, to due credit to him, he was being entirely honest with me, mm. not ducking or dodging or diving or weaving, he was answering the questions honestly, and I'm afraid he did sign his death warrant at that point. And were you aware of that in that moment, as it were? Did you think? I think so. Um, I think it was fairly obvious that... Um, he was going to find it difficult to carry on. But as I say, I didn't know that he was on the point of, retire, of, of resigning. I don't know whether he did or not, of course. Mm. I mean, you mentioned about Margaret Thatcher ringing you. Uh, clearly, the, the number 10 Downing Street has a vast array of PR people now that would advise the Prime Minister never to, never to just ring you know, the Today programme and demand that they go on air. Um, oh, on the contrary, they do it all the time. Oh, but it, it, in such an impromptu manner, I don't know. Oh, not it, like that. Uh, yeah. No, no, I no. I mean, for example, no. you know, one of my questions would be, what would you give, what would the advice you would give to one of your own interviewees if you were to ever retire and become a media trainer. God, God help forbid. You. I used to do media training of, of, of some people, never never politicians, but I stopped doing that many 20 years ago, I think. Because um, presumably you'd have said to listen, George, don't do it, don't do um, the interview. If, if I, well, you know what, in that case I wouldn't because the BBC, above all, has a responsibility to be transparent. We work for the licence payer. They pay our wages. They are absolutely entitled to hear the Director General of the BBC being called to account if it's big enough, important enough and serious enough. And that was, that was about as important as it gets. And the future of the BBC was literally at stake. If we'd gone any further down that road, the road that we were going, it would have been the end of 
BBC News as we know it. I mm. think it was a real, just as with Iraq, um, the, 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 that was a serious existential crisis for the BBC. But no, my my serious advice to, if I were ever to do the job, which I won't, but if I were, my serious advice to politicians would be um, respect the audience. Forget about the interviewer. I mean, forget about Humphreys or Nocte or wherever it happens to be. You're talking to a few million people out there who want to know what you think about this, that or the other. And they want straight answers. And if you do the ducking and dodging and saying, oh, well, no, 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 I think the question people really want to ask is whatever, and then deliver your party political broadcast, um, you lose the faith of the audience. And the, the thing you get, the thing I get, endlessly from the audience. I speak to them a lot in various formats. Uh, The thing I get endlessly is not why do you interrupt them so much, it's why do you let them get away without answering the questions? Why don't you just say, all right, we'll stop it, go away then if you don't want. But because the answer to that is you can't. Mm. I mean, you have to go through with it and and you have to trust that even if they are... um, failing to answer the questions, to put it politely, the, the audience will spot it. And therefore, the, the interview hasn't been wasted because the audience has got something from it. Has there been any kind of very difficult moments in interviews where, I mean, more than, you know, merely beyond politicians ducking and diving the question? Oh, many. Yes, I, was, I, I had a frightful hangover once. Once, you'll notice, <laughs> once. And it was about, a, I don't know, month after I'd started on the programme, 30 years ago nearly, and I thought it would be possible to go out in the evening and have a few drinks before doing the show the following morning. It isn't, certainly not to have as many drinks as I had that night. And uh, and I found myself, everything was fine when I went into the programme. I was feeling off top of the world. I was still drunk, I think. Um, and uh, right up until the point where um, I was doing an interview down the line with a senior politician and, and the hangover hit me or whatever it was and I'd realised that I could think of no more questions for him and much worse than that even, I had actually forgotten who he was. <laughs> um, can you remember so who he was now? Yeah, yeah I can, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you because he might not know. I mean, we've talked about the difficult interviews there. Was there any particular highlights that stand out? Who have been your favourite interviewees? Well, actually, no politicians, really. Um, I mean, that, that's not true. I love interviewing politicians, and lots of them I have done interviews that I have hugely enjoyed, um, though I'm not here to enjoy myself, <laughs> but, but nonetheless. But, but no, it, it, I'm tempted to use the phrase real people, uh, which suggests that politicians aren't, and of course they are. But it's people you don't expect to perform in a particular way that that, that gives you a particular satisfaction. I mean, I, I did a uh, interview at great length a woman uh, last year who was a survivor of the concentration camps and dealt with her story in such um, in such a way that it left you at the end just just gasping in admiration of the the, the strength of the human spirit. It's that. I remember an interview, and will always remember an interview I did in South Africa before the. Um, when Nelson Mandela was elected president, the first black elections, and I'd gone out to Soweto the day before the election was due to be was was due to take place because they were allowing some people to vote early, people who were very very old or pregnant women, disabled people, and so on, and masses and masses of them turned out. That itself was a humbling experience to see them in Soweto, and the ten past eight. Um, was me. They told me that they wanted to hear... London had told me they wanted to hear me talking to people queuing up to vote. 
what it meant to them and all that. And, and it was a difficult call. But anyway, we decided, I decided on, a, on a very, very old lady uh, who was standing next to a young, very, very pregnant woman. And I wanted something powerful, the old woman, some sort of diatribe against, um, against apartheid, the years of apartheid. And I said to her, uh, we were live on air, obviously, and I said, what you're about to vote for the first time in your life, what's it going to mean to you? And she said... Um, for me, it will mean nothing. And I thought, oh, God, this is not what I needed. This is going to be, yeah. oh, dear. Um, and then she paused, and, and I kept my nerve and, and waited. And she leaned across, and she tapped the stomach of the young woman standing next to her, and she said, but for this young man in this woman's stomach, it will mean everything because he will be able to do something that has been denied to me all my life. He will have the dignity that has been denied to me. And it was just the way she said it and the dignity with which she said it and the power with which she said it. It's things like that that you remember. Did you always want to be a journalist? Always. Boring story from the age of about six. I used to read Superman comics because we got them cheap after the war, second-hand ones from America. And um, Superman was, of course, Clark Kent, in still the, is. In the human world, still is, I dare say, <laughs> absolutely, out there. And um, and he was a journalist. And so at the age of five... So you wanted I to work for the Daily Planet? I wanted to work for the Daily Planet. I wanted to, to wear one of those things. I wanted to fly and save the world. And, and the way to do that, obviously, I thought was to become a journalist. Fine for a five-year-old kid, but, you know, by the time you get to be 50, you know... Oh dear, I still dream of it. It hasn't worked out like that. I spoke with Torrin Douglas a few weeks ago and he he did this interview and he said that what got him into journalism was he played that board game called Scoop. Oh, remember that? It was yeah, like Monopoly, but it was yeah. like a, I'm sure it's just a strange thing that inspires people into journalism. Yeah, quite. Well, nobody who's saying would do it. No, actually, it's a great job. Well, well, that actually brings me to my next question is that young people aspiring to the industry now, whether it to be in the newspapers or the broadcast journalism, do you think they've got it more difficult now or do you think it's easier with the likes of Twitter and social media to no. make a name for yourself? I I think it's infinitely more difficult. I left school at the age of 15, got a job on a local paper, got a job on a bigger paper, then a bigger paper, then I worked for ITV and boom, boom, boom. just went on like that. Easy. Uh, now, it isn't like that. For a start, you've got to have a decent degree uh, before you'll even be considered, I imagine. Uh, and then the competition is staggering. If you asked me, as I dare say you will, if I have any advice to offer young people who want to become journalists... You've I anticipated would... my next question. Well, <laughs> I would say what the uh, the principal of a music college once said to my oldest son when he auditioned to be uh, a chalice, to, to go to the Royal College of Music, a student of the Royal College of Music, and he heard him play and he said, I... Uh, I would advise you not to be a cellist and his face, his jaw dropped and he looked very sad and then the, the principal who was a wise man said unless of course doing anything else would make you desperately unhappy and that's what I would say to anybody who wanted to be a journalist because it is very very tough to get in it's very tough to survive, you can rub along no doubt doing all sorts of stuff on the internet, social media and all the rest of it but actually getting a job anywhere like the BBC or whatever or decent newspaper, terribly difficult not well paid um, and the chances of the, the competition is just breathtaking so I would say think of something else and if you can't think of anything else that you don't want to do at all then give it a go but uh, boy get loads and loads and loads of experience before, before you even write or whatever to a newspaper or the BBC or anything, get something uh, to tell them that you know you have um, you, you, you are in, and be curious 
I was going to say, what would your second choice career have been? You said oh, actually, there, there was never there wouldn't have been one. No, 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 no,
becomes persuaded the license fee is um, is the best system. I don't know. I simply don't know what he's going to do. I don't suppose he does either at the moment because they're doing all sorts of reviews and the license is uh, up for renewal, as we all know. So it's it's um, we'll see. What's your view on how journalists are trying to innovate in terms of their funding model? I mean, newspapers, the print press are dying in the long term. We've got crowdfunded journalism. You know, might it be that I have to pay 70 pence when I listen to the Today programme a few years from now and there's there's no license fee? How do you think that, that, that journalism per se is, is going to react to the new kind of straightened times? Well, you could argue that it doesn't matter who pays for it. Um, after all, we pay for our newspapers and we're not surprised to be doing that. We pay for the Today programme. We pay a licence. We pay £145 a year. So it's not as if you're getting it for free. You are paying for it. I don't like the idea personally of the sort of subscription you describe. I lived in the United States for years and the uh, the public service um, network that they had there was nothing like as good as we have here in spite of the size and power and wealth of the United States because it was done on subscription and every so often they would have a, uh, a sort of telethon thing, pleading for people to give money to uh, PBS. So I'm not personally a fan for the, certainly as far as news is concerned, news, I think, has to be funded um, independently. Well, you can argue, some people do argue that it's a tax. I don't think it's a tax. Uh, I don't agree with that either. But really. on the other hand, you've got to pay it. If you've got to tell, you've got to pay it. And of course, there are worries about what's going to happen in the future. I don't like the idea of having to put a, a shilling in the slot to be able to listen to the Today programme. But then I would say that, wouldn't I? I think one final question that springs to mind about the Beeb is, don't you think they're damned if they're doing, they're damned if they don't, insofar as I'm, I'm quite happy to pay for news, but there again, maybe Sherlock and Doctor Who and all of these kind of crowd-pleasing shows could be made in the independent sector? Well, they could, but then, then that calls into question the whole future. The BBC is a universal provider, and that so some people who pay the licence fee don't listen to the Today programme. I'm appalled and outraged that that should be the case, but, <laughs> but apparently it is. Quite a few do, but some don't, and they much prefer to watch Strictly. They're entitled to that for their £145 or £147 a year. They are, they are entitled to that, um, and the idea that the BBC should be the exclusive preserve of the chatterati I find repugnant. You've said you're going to stay on at the Today programme forever. Uh, Not quite. No, no, well, I I'm paraphrasing. quite say that, but anyway, go on. But tell us about some of your other extracurricular activities. I mean, you're a prolific author. You well, I've written seven books. As I said, I, I, I run a charity, which is the most important thing I do. Um, and, and I have children ranging in age from uh, 15 to nearly 50 and uh, I always I, know how busy someone is because uh, if you if you ask to interview them and it's four months from now you, you get a sense of how well, busy they are and, and, I, and I sort of renovate houses I just finished renovating an old ruin in, in West Wales and it's a farm and I've been a farmer and um, I just do lots and lots of stuff really I don't know and you stay local to London then no no all over the place I've got a place in Greece as well and uh, no no have you ever have you ever done presented the Today program from there? Have you got an ISDN line in from in, Greece <laughs> three times, I think, four wow. times. Mm. Wow, fantastic! Yeah. Well, John, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been a very, very interesting, a very engaging interview, and, and uh, we're hugely grateful. Thank you. Great pleasure. A big things media production. <laughs> big things. <laughs>